to the Royal Observatory's Look Up podcast. I'm Dara and I'm going to highlight what to look for in the sky in July in this cosmic diary. Now when looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing. And if you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Now in the midst of summer, long dark nights for deep space observing elude us. But this July is a great month for solar system observation, with many opportune moments to spot our planetary neighbours. The full moon this month falls on the early morning of the 5th of July. Wait until that evening and you'll see it in conjunction with Jupiter when it rises above the southeastern horizon shortly before 11pm. A conjunction is an apparent meeting or passing of two or more celestial bodies and because Saturn is in close proximity too, by the time these two planets and the moon set in the southwest the following morning, the moon will be approaching its conjunction with Saturn, which unfortunately occurs just after they've dipped below the horizon. The pre-dawn sky will showcase a planetary buffet with the Moon, Jupiter and Saturn in the southwest, Mars in the southeast, Uranus in the east and Venus beginning to rise over the eastern horizon too and all but Uranus will be visible to the naked eye. Catch Mars close to the waning gibbous moon from the hours after midnight on 12th of July when they rise in the southeast. A few hours earlier, the Moon would have been in conjunction with the red planet, making their closest approach whilst being below the horizon. But they'll still be quite close together and are a great duo to spot before the Sun rises. Roughly every 26 months, the positions of Mars and Earth in their respective orbits brings them into a favourable alignment that provides the best window of opportunity to send spacecraft to our planetary companion. No surprise then that there are a few spacecraft planned to be launched this July during this advantageous period. On the 14th of July, the United Arab Emirates plans to launch its first ever Mars orbiter in its Hope Mars mission. If all goes to plan, it will launch from the Tanegashima Space Center in Japan at roughly 9.51pm BST, so in our UK time. And just a few days later, on the 17th of July, NASA's Mars 2020 rover is due to launch from Cape Canaveral in Florida at 2.10pm BST, again our UK time. Scheduled in the same launch window, July into early August, but with no precise date yet announced, China also plans to launch its Tainwen-1 mission, an orbiter and small rover to land on Mars, which would make China only the second country to successfully land a probe on Mars after the United States. Having reached inferior conjunction in early June, Venus has moved from being visible in the western sky just after sunset to now being a prominent morning star as it's referred to in the eastern sky instead. It will be visible throughout the month and become easier to spot as it climbs further above the horizon throughout July. On the 17th, the waning crescent moon will be in conjunction with Venus shortly after the sun rises, so look for the pair above the eastern horizon before dawn with the red giant star Aldebaran close by too. 
Around the middle of the month, both Jupiter and Saturn reach opposition on the 14th and 20th respectively. At these times, each planet will be on the opposite side of the Earth compared to the Sun, configured in an approximately straight line. This means the planets will be roughly at their closest distance to the Earth, and so will appear slightly larger and brighter, making it the best time to spot them. Look to the south around midnight, throughout this period. It'll be a dazzling sight for naked eye observation, but a treat through a telescope too. Do be sure to get a clear sight without tall buildings or trees, as they'll block your view of the planets, which won't be very far above the horizon. In early June, Mercury reached greatest eastern elongation, making it a prime time to look for the solar system's smallest planet. On the 22nd of July, Mercury will reach greatest western elongation, appearing furthest west of the Sun in its orbit from our Earth-bound view. But once again, this will provide a great opportunity to spot it, so look to the east before the sun rises. Mercury will be closer to the horizon and slightly further to the northeast compared to the bright point of Venus. Towards the end of the month, we're treated to the annual Delta Aquarids meteor shower, which will reach its peak on the night of the 28th and early morning of the 29th. It's named as such because the trail of dust, suspected to originate from comet 96P Macholtz, that the Earth ploughs through in its orbit every year, appears to emanate from the constellation of Aquarius to produce the meteors in this shower. It's not a very strong shower, with a meteor count of 20 meteors per hour, but the waxing gibbous moon will set shortly after midnight, which will leave you with darker skies to spot the meteors in the early morning, when the radiant will be at its highest. Face south and scan the skies using just your eyes. Remember to be patient and wrap up warm. The nights can get chilly even in the summer. Now, if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. Welcome back to this, the Cosmic News part of the podcast. This is the part where we like to explore recent astronomy news and keep us up to date with the goings on in the astronomical world. Now, over the last several months, I've been finding news stories that have broken in the astronomical world that link to an underlying mystery or an age-old question that scientists have about the universe. And for this month, I was immediately drawn to a story or a new study which was published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters from scientists at the National Science Foundation's Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO, and the Virgo Detector in Europe. As humans, we have a tendency to classify things. We sort them into groups so that we can differentiate between things and make sense of what they are. And in astronomy, that's no different. But because space is so big, and we can't always travel to different places or objects to touch them and truly work out what they are, we instead build up as many cases as we can and try and find groups and patterns in what we observe. But because there's so much of space, that does mean that we've not explored everything and often we find gaps in our findings. One such gap is known as the mass gap. Now, mass is the amount of matter that something is made of. It's how heavy an object is. 
For example, a balloon filled with air is less massive than a watermelon of the same size. That's because the matter, mostly gas, in the balloon is less tightly or densely packed than the matter in the watermelon. We often use mass and weight interchangeably. Now, if I sensitively ask someone, what's your weight? They'll often reply something like, I'm 50 kilograms or 70 kilograms or 90 kilograms. Whatever their answer, they'll use units like kilograms. But by doing that, what they're telling me is their mass, how much matter they're made of. Weight is different. It's a force instead. It's the force of gravity acting on matter. Now, the mass gap refers to the gap in the range of masses in stellar objects, or specifically, the remnants of them. Now, let me explain. Stars are like humans. They have lifetimes and different evolutionary paths. And their evolution is all dependent on how massive the star is when it's born. Remember, that means how much material or matter the star is made of. Now, small to medium-sized stars like our sun, once they've used up their fuel, they slowly puff out their outer layers and turn into a planetary nebula. And they leave behind the remnant core of a star which once existed. Now, though, we call it a white dwarf star. And although the outer layers of the star puff out and away, the core actually contracts and it gets more compact. So for a star like our sun, the white dwarf star, which it will eventually turn into, would be about the size of the Earth, yet contain nearly all the mass of the sun. It would be a very dense star with material or matter packed very tightly within it. For stars that are born more massive than our sun, though, their evolutionary path is different. Once they use up all their fuel, they collapse in on themselves so violently that the matter in the core of the star gets squashed so tightly and the outer layer ends up rebounding in a supernova explosion. The end fate of the star depends on how tightly packed the matter in the core becomes. So some massive stars end up as neutron stars, where the matter is very tightly packed. A neutron star could be the size of London and have all the matter or mass of the sun packed within it. So incredibly dense, even more dense than the white dwarf star I mentioned. But the most massive stars have a different final fate. When the core of the star collapses, the matter gets squashed so much so and becomes so densely packed that all the matter gets packed into an infinitely small volume of space. The core of the most massive stars become black holes. And because there are different types of black holes in the universe, those created from the death of a massive star are known as stellar mass black holes. Now generally, there's a limit to the mass of a white dwarf star, the remnant core of a small medium-sized star as mentioned. It's known as the Chandrasaka limit and is about 1.4 times the mass of our sun. So if the white dwarf star has more mass than this, it will typically collapse under its own gravity and it will form an even more compact star, the neutron star. Similarly, there is a limit to the mass of a neutron star before it would collapse under its own gravity too to theoretically produce a black hole. Now that limit is known as the Tolman-Oppenheimer-Volkoff limit, and it's around 2.1 times the mass of our sun. 
So the dead core of a star, if its mass is less than 1.4 times the mass of our sun, or 1.4 times all the matter that we find in our sun, then it will be a white dwarf star. If the mass of the dead core of a star is instead between 1.4 times the mass of our sun and 2.1 times the mass of our sun, then it will become a neutron star instead. And if the mass of the dead core of a star is more than 2.1 times the mass of our sun, well then it's likely to become a stellar mass black hole. However, there is an interval where the masses of the low mass neutron stars and the high mass white dwarf stars can overlap. So it's not a perfectly straight cut limit or boundary. The puzzling part though arises from the fact that the most massive neutron stars are no more than about 2.5 times the mass of our sun and the lightest known black holes observed are about five times the mass of our sun. So there's this mass gap between two and a half and five times the mass of our sun where we haven't observed any really heavy neutron stars or light black holes to really understand where those limits lie. Now that is until last month when scientists that are a part of the LIGO-Virgo gravitational waves network detected a gravitational wave incident which suggested that one of the two objects involved in the merging event which produced these gravitational waves had a mass of 2.6 times the mass of our sun which puts this object in that mass gap. Now you can imagine their excitement. They have finally detected an object that lies in the mass gap and could better our understanding of what's going on in this interlude between the heaviest neutron stars and the lightest black holes that we've seen. But how do we know that the object had a mass of 2.6 times the mass of our sun? Did they see it? Or how can gravitational wave events reveal this? Well, gravitational waves were predicted as a result of Einstein's general theory of relativity. And they are disturbances in the curvature of space-time caused by accelerated masses. Let's take a step back. So we have our three-dimensional space and time is added as a fourth dimension. We imagine this all as a smooth fabric, the fabric of space-time. And what Einstein suggested was that gravity was a bending of this space-time. Think of it as placing an object on a latex sheet. The more massive or heavy an object is, the more it will deform the latex sheet, the more it will bend space-time. Now, a massive object causes a, a well-like shape in the fabric. So anything that ventures near it ends up curving around it i.e. drawn in by its gravity, or in some cases an object will end up circling it or orbiting it, and in other cases objects will spiral into it like a spiral wishing well that you slot coins into. Objects that don't have much mass, they don't tend to bend the fabric of space-time as much, so they have little effect. But if you have two massive objects accelerating, and by accelerating we mean they're speeding up or slowing down or changing direction, i.e. they're spinning around each other, then you don't just get a bending of space-time in one position, in one place, i.e. a well-shaped hole. 
Instead, these two massive objects are moving, they're spinning around each other. And so their curvature and effect on space-time isn't stationary. As they move, they create ripples in the fabric of space-time. And the emission of these gravitational waves carries away their orbital energy over time. And that causes the two massive objects to get closer to each other over time. And as their orbits get tighter, the gravitational waves get stronger. And eventually, the two massive objects collide and merge. And in those last few seconds, they emit one of the most powerful outflows of energy in the universe. Now, only massive objects like neutron stars and black holes could create sizable gravitational waves. Now, in this study, the detection was dubbed GW190814, and the merging event resulted in a black hole about 25 times the mass of our sun, and it's located about 800 million light years from the Earth. Now that means a light signal from there would take 800 million years to reach us. Better still, if you were standing at that merged black hole and you sent a text message to someone back on the Earth, a text message travelling at the speed of light, well it would take 800 million years for your text message to reach us. Now the gravitational waves will have travelled out in all directions. And like ripples in a pond, those signals get weaker the longer they travel out. So you can just imagine how weak the signal that reached the Earth would have been. But that's where LIGO and VIRGO come in. LIGO is short for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And it's a large-scale physics experiment to detect cosmic gravitational waves. Now there are two instruments, one at the Hanford site in Washington state in the US and the other in Livingston in the state of Louisiana in the US. Now each site has two four kilometre arms or tunnels or pipes arranged perpendicularly or at right angles to each other. And a laser beam is sent down each arm and reflected back by mirrors at the ends of these pipes. Now, when you have no disturbances in the fabric of space-time, the lasers will merge back together again in sync from where they were emitted, having been reflected back from the ends of those pipes or tunnels. But if there's a gravitational wave event passing us, it will end up stretching space in one direction and shrinking it in the other. There will be a difference in the space that one laser beam has to travel compared to the other laser beam which is travelling at right angles to it. And so as a result, the two laser beams which are sent out in sync end up being reflected back by the mirrors at the ends of the pipes and returning out of sync because the distance in one pipe has effectively been reduced while in the other it's been increased. Now Virgo is similarly a gravitational wave detector and is located near the city of Pisa in Italy. Its two arms are three kilometres long and again arranged perpendicularly. Now Virgo is part of a scientific collaboration of labs from Italy, France, the Netherlands, Poland, Hungary and Spain. And since 2007, both LIGO in the US and Virgo in Europe agreed to share and jointly analyse their data from their detectors and then jointly publish their results. Now, collaboration is hugely important, 
especially in new science like gravitational waves. Detecting gravitational waves is an incredibly sensitive science, and the signals of the waves are often hidden in lots of background noise, which often drowns out the gravitational wave signal itself. That's why it's important to have several different groups studying the same events, as they will have near identical signals hidden amidst the local noise picked up by their detectors. Now, the event in question was detected on the 14th of August 2019, and scientists have had to sift through the data to work out the details of the merging event. They've inferred that a black hole with a mass of 23 times the mass of our sun merged with this other object, which had a mass of 2.6 times the mass of our sun. And that object therefore ends up being placed in that mass gap. Now the end result was a black hole with a mass of only 25 times the mass of our sun which is a little less than the combined masses of the two objects which merged to form it. And that's because some of the merged mass would have been converted into energy in the form of gravitational waves. Now, the second object with the mass of 2.6 times the mass of our sun is a really important find. It's either the heaviest known neutron star we've detected or the lightest black hole. But either way, it's a record breaker. But how do they know what the mass of the objects were when they were only able to detect the merged black hole, but not necessarily the components before the event? Well, fortunately, the gravitational waves emitted by binary systems like this, when they merge, those signals are not random. The waveforms that are produced are very structured and they carry lots of information in them about the pregenitor system, i.e. what was there before. So a gravitational wave signal that might be displayed on something like an oscilloscope, are like to when you use audio software and it displays the waveform of the sound that you're listening to. That signal can carry information about the masses of the two in-spiraling objects, how fast each of the objects is rotating on their own axes, and even how far away the binary system is from the Earth. Now, different sources create different signals. And these wave signals have different amplitudes, different wavelengths, and they vary differently over the detection period, depending on what that pregenitor system was. Now, when the event was spotted by LIGO and Virgo, they immediately sent out an alert to others in the astronomy community to try and pick up the light signals from this event. If it was in fact two black holes colliding, there wouldn't have been any light given off in most circumstances. But if it was a neutron star colliding with a black hole, then some of the neutron star's matter could have been flung around and so there may have been a light produced uh, in this merging. None of the ground-based or space telescopes that looked for the light signal though were able to find one. But that still doesn't resolve the case. Firstly, this event was six times further away than the gravitational waves event from 2017, which was caused by two black holes colliding. And that would make picking up any light signal from this event much harder. Now, it could be two black holes merging, in which case you wouldn't expect to detect any light signal. But equally, if it was a neutron star, it was a neutron star with nine times less mass than the black hole it merged with. 
And in that case, the black hole may have consumed the neutron star entirely as a whole, and that wouldn't have given off any light either. So where do we go from here? Well, perhaps unfortunately, this specific case might not ever be resolved for sure, but by catching similar events in the future, scientists might be able to verify if objects truly exist in this mass gap. Perhaps the mass gap does exist, or maybe it doesn't, and we just haven't detected any object in that range. But this detection could be the first. What's exciting is if uh, the object does turn out to be a neutron star, then it would defy our understanding of extremely dense matter and what we currently believe about the evolution of stars. It could open up the science of stellar evolution again, where we'd need to revisit the fundamentals and perhaps even come up with new theories. So that brings us to the end of the cosmic news for this month. Definitely some food for thought there. And we'll be putting this story to the vote on our Twitter poll at the start of the month for the week. Uh, it's always interesting to see what you all think. And this poll, as mentioned, will be up on our Twitter page at the start of the month. If you don't already follow us, we are at ROG Astronomers. And we'll be posing this question, the case of a mysterious object found in the mass gap. Is it a neutron star? Is it a black hole? Or is it something completely different? So please do cast your votes and let us know what you think. Thanks also to all of you who voted on last month's Look Up Twitter poll. The question we asked then was the cosmic chicken and the egg question. Which came first? Was it the supermassive black hole and then the galaxies they reside in? Or perhaps galaxies formed first and then the supermassive black holes appeared? Or what most of you voted for was that they actually maybe formed together. And it was great to see what your thoughts on that were. Before signing off, I'd just like to mention that we have a range of other podcasts on our SoundCloud account. We're Royal Observatory Greenwich on there. And if you can't get enough astronomy in your lives, we've now also got a YouTube account. Search for Royal Observatory. We've got new videos being uploaded every week. Now, if anyone prefers a written account of the Cosmic Diary at the start of this podcast that showcases the astronomical highlights to look out for in July, then check out our blog, head to rmg.co.uk and search for Night Sky Highlights. The blog includes handy tips and references to help with your stargazing. It's now time for me to sign off, but thanks again uh, for listening. Do take care, happy stargazing, and I'll see you all next month for more Look Up. Thank you.